Welcome everyone to our podcast, Many Threads, One Fabric, in production with New York State United Teachers. At Many Threads, One Fabric, we understand that our stories, while unique, are part of a larger human story. By sharing those stories, we can find common ground within our diverse worlds and experience the American motto of E Pluribus Unum, out of many one. At NICET, we see it as our many threads creating one fabric. Okay, so we're here with Ms. Grunenberg. And the first thing I want to ask you is, how do you identify racially and or ethnically? I identify as Chinese. I was born in China, but I was adopted at nine months old and brought to the U.S. at such a young age. So I also identify as American because that's like really all the culture I know. And then funny enough, people, I, I forget to mention this to people when I first meet them. I actually consider myself more Irish because my whole family is Irish and I grew up with Irish culture. And when I mentioned that, they're like, what do you mean? Like, is your dad Irish? It's like, oh, no, I'm, a, I'm adopted. I like the little bit of like Chinese culture that's instilled in me is from my mom, like making sure she brought in some of that culture into the household. But I, I know more about Irish culture than I do about Chinese culture. <laughs> that's so interesting. That is super interesting. I, the first question, it kind of gets back to, to how you grew up. What kind of kid were you? What was like your interactions with teachers, grades, that kind of thing? I was, I, I would say like grade wise, I was probably more like above average, always like never star student, always like low 90s area. Uh, it always felt like average to me because that's was like all my friends grades. Um, and I was pretty model student, you know, sat there and did what I was told to do. Um, most teachers liked me, I'd say like high school, I got a little bit more rebellious, but um, I'd say like all through elementary school and middle school, I don't remember ever having a teacher I really like disliked. I, I just did what I was told and they liked me. <laughs> nice. So no um, massive suspensions for violent episodes or anything <laughs> no. like that? No. <laughs> never suspended, never detention. I think the worst was one time I did get mad at a student and hit him with a stick and I was told to go to the principal's office, but I don't actually remember going into the principal's office. I just remember waiting outside of it for a long time crying. Oh, <laughs> see, that was your punishment. Yeah. <laughs> so when you decided uh, to go to college, where did you decide to go? Um, how did you pay for it? And then what was particularly hard or difficult or easy about it? So I went to SUNY Potsdam for the Crane School of Music. Um, there's sort of limited options in New York for different music schools, especially depending on what you're looking for. I ended up choosing Crane because that's where a lot of my own um, music teachers went. So, and they all had a good experience. Um, it has really, really great uh, statistics and, and um, it has a great name attached to it. And one of the things that they pride themselves on is I think 98% of uh, music ed majors get a job like straight out of college. So I was like, sounds good. Um, I already knew going into it, I was going to be paying for the college. My mom, like I said, I was adopted. My mom never married. She's single and she's also a teacher and she works at a private school. So she makes no money. <laughs> um, she actually mentioned, I told her about our pay raise and, uh, <laughs> she was like, wow, you're only 10,000 away from what I'm making and you're 24. <laughs> wow. So I, yeah, my mother was a Catholic school teacher and, uh, and I possibly the day that I started working. I was making about what she had made, so. Yep. So she she doesn't make quite that low because I worked at a Catholic school before this, but she does make a pretty low amount for the amount of years she's been working. She's retiring this year, and she just heard that they're finally getting a raise, and she's like, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I knew I'd be paying for college myself. Um, she did take out Parent Plus loans, but we made it very clear that like when I got out of college, I'd be paying for them, which I'm doing right now. Um, I'm lucky enough that I'm living uh, with my uncle. I was living at home and he has a little studio apartment downstairs so I can have my free space while still not having to pay like ridiculous rent. So I'm one of the few people fortunate enough to have paid off a good chunk of my loans already. Um, hoping that I can pay them off before I'm 30. Well, it's the dream. Mm -hmm. Fingers crossed. <laughs> um, what did you find easy or hard about college? Um... I think, so I, I feel like my perspective is different more for the music aspect because 
music college is just so different from regular college to begin with. You're like guaranteed an 8 a.m. no matter what at, within your four years of college. And we always have end up having more classes than the typical college student just because a lot of our classes require things like lessons or rehearsals outside of class and they don't get felt like counted into the hours that you need. So like every music student that I knew was overloading on classes or they had 18 credits on paper and they were meeting for things school related for 21 to 24 hours a week. Um, so we never had free time. <laughs> and when it comes to more like the cultural aspect of it, I was there for education, not for performance. There's a lot of people there for both or for just performance and it gets really, really competitive and I was not like the competitive performer type. Um, could definitely bring down the morale a little bit. And then I always felt, because I'm Asian, a lot of it felt like, uh, oh, I should be better at it, or I should be getting better grades. And I'm just like, I'm just here being a person. <laughs> um, I actually mentioned to a, a boyfriend that I was, I was dating at the time, an ex-boyfriend. Um, <laughs> I was like, oh, sometimes I feel like a lot of my accomplishments are overlooked because people just expect me to be good because I'm Asian. And he was just like, Oh wow, you have it so hard. You're so good at everything. I was like, you're missing the point, yeah. dude. That's literally what I was just talking about. Right. And he like kind of belittled me after yeah. I like confided in him that, and I was like, wow, okay, never mind. I'm glad that guy's an ex-boyfriend. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm. I'm glad he is too for a lot of other reasons. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that is super interesting. I know. Uh, you know, it's one of those overlooked kind of implicit bias uh, parts of our culture, the Asian model minority stereotype. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's really fascinating to share. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know it was like a stereotype until more recently, honestly, with more like Asian exposure. Fortunately, a lot of it kind of came out negatively through the pandemic, but I, I kind of realized a little bit through college and then through a lot of that, that a lot of other people who are like me have that same experience. And then I, I also found in college, I had a couple of friends who were also Asian and adopted into white families. And we had a lot of the same experiences of just like this whitewashing and feeling like an imposter and being disconnected from like both cultures. Yeah, I'm sure. So what made you choose a career in teaching? Initially, it was, um, I want to say in like 10th grade, my orchestra teacher was just like cool and fun and I liked being in his class. And Initially, I, I was like, I don't want to do any kind of nine to five. I was like, it looks boring, it looks dreadful. And I was trying to figure out like what jobs could be fun. Not necessarily a passion, just like fun to do where I wouldn't hate being at work every day. And it was originally fashion designer. And then when he was teaching, I was like, oh, he's having fun and we're having fun. That seems like cool. And also a little less competitive than fashion designer. <laughs> um, so got into it for that and then um, this happened with like all my friends as we were in college, our reason for teaching kind of like developed slowly over time and our, our reasonings for it changed. And I kind of went from like, oh, I want to have a fun job and like spread music to people to more like, oh, there's a lot of things like wrong with this world. And there's a lot of things wrong with school. And I kind of want to be one of the people to help fix and impact that. What was that 10th grade teacher's name? Uh, his name is Mr. Willis. Good job, Mr. Willis. It sounds like, uh, you know, it's a good reminder that when you're a teacher, sometimes just being a happy person is, is a great way to set an example for students. What instruments do you play? All of them. Um, <laughs> uh, violin's my primary, and then for music ed, you have to know the secondary so you can teach them. So I know viola, cello, and bass at a fairly good high school level for my job. Um, and then I noodle around on things like mandolin, guitar, ukulele, I'm trying to get into Tin Whistle now. One day I'll own bagpipes. One of my life goals is to just play as many instruments as I can and be able to noodle on all of them. So, Noodle. I like the word noodle you like <laughs> used. And I also like previously when you said fretful, very naturally in a sentence. Oh, I, like I didn't that. even realize. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't want a career that was seen fretful. What a great word. Okay, so there are not very many teachers of color and therefore even fewer students of color that go into education. What would you tell our students of color today in your classroom to get them thinking about careers in education? I think the main thing is that um, you don't necessarily have to love school. In fact, you almost shouldn't if you wanna be an educator, like much for the reasons that I am still in it now um, if you want to see change and if you're someone who's kind of passionate about, you know, 
things that are wrong in education or things that are um, could be better in education, then the best way to fix it is to just jump right in and you know give people your voice in the matter uh, directly. So, um, especially if you were someone who grew up and not didn't see a lot of diversity and you felt there was a lot of things working against you, um, the more active you can be in it and. Again, the highest way to be active is just be in the field directly. Uh, the more likely things are to change. That's really interesting perspective, right? It's fantastic. Like if, you, if you don't like school, if you didn't have a good experience, like all the more reason to get yeah, into it. Yeah, and like for me, honestly, I did have a great experience in school. Um, I've, I see a lot of things that were wrong, like looking back, but growing up, I don't think it was until like high school where everyone just kind of <laughs> doesn't enjoy being in school, um, where I was like, just floating. I was like, oh, school's fine. It's part of life, whatever. But it, I feel like if you're really passionate about like, oh, a lot of this could just be better, then go do it. So uh, let me ask you this question. How did your friends react when you told them that you wanted to be a teacher? Um, I don't know. I'm trying to remember like my high school friend group. We haven't talked in a long time. Um, and I think they were kind of indifferent to it, to be totally honest. Um, I did have one friend who made fun of, like, everything that we did. She mostly <laughs> made fun of me and my other friend who were both going to music, but he was going for performance and I was going into education. She more made fun of us for just going into the arts in general and being broke um, than the actual education part. Um, my family got worried about the music part. My mom got worried about the teaching part because she's a teacher and she's like, only do it if you really like it, please. Mm -hmm. um, so she had me do like volunteer stuff over the summers. There was a summer camp and I helped out all the time with lessons and that really solidified it for me. I really liked helping out with the teachers. I liked um, getting to work with the students a little bit hands-on. Um, and then when I actually went to college, I had a little questioning in the first year, which I feel like happens to everyone both in education and in music in general. Um, but then by like, I think sophomore, junior year, where we got a lot more hands-on experience that like solidified it for me. I was like, oh yeah, this is like totally what I want to do. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your story. Good luck with the bagpipes. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I got to afford them first. <laughs> How much uh, are they? Uh, a decent set, like at least a thousand. Okay. So uh, that's one of my many rewards after my loans are paid off. <laughs> thank you so great. much yeah, thank you, so much. Really yeah thank you hi this is bobby from belfort nicest takes a look at teaching initiative as a union-led initiative to develop a robust state statewide educator pipeline in new york one of its aims is to increase educator workforce diversity in New York, students of color represent 56% of total enrollment, while teachers of color represent only 19% of the workforce. In the 2016 through 2017 school year, more than 200 public schools districts in New York did not employ a single teacher of color. Overall, enrollment in New York State teachers' education programs have declined by 50% since 2009. With more teachers retiring, it's estimated that we will need up to 180,000 teachers in the next 10 years. The teacher shortage crisis is real. We need you. Thanks to the strength of our union, New York teachers make a good living in a very rewarding profession. Consider taking a look at teaching for your future career. Okay, so we're here with Mrs. Garcia. Um, and the first question I have for you is, how do you identify racially and or ethnically? Well, I am Hispanic. I was born in the U.S. and both my parents are Guatemalan. I'm very proud of my heritage and culture growing up at home. Racially, it is always difficult for me to identify that because as we know, most Latinos are of mixed ancestry due to the colonization of our countries by Spain. So I always say there should be like a mestizo checkbox on those surveys that ask your race because that's how I would identify. I know I have indigenous ancestry as well as European, so it's definitely some Mayan blood somewhere in me, but that's how I would identify. Yeah. Uh, do you ever check the mixed race? If they have that option. Yeah. Yeah. But there's not, that's and, not always like right. available. And then I wonder, do they think of the mixed race as our mestizo culture or do they think of the mixed race as like just like 
black and white or Latino and white or Latino, and you know what I mean? Yeah, like, I totally agree. I think that they don't see it as our mix. Right. So I just did a survey for my son. So I'm Guatemalan and my husband is, he was born in Dominican Republic. So my son is even more mixed, mm -hmm. but they're like, so what is his race? I was trying to sign him up for pre-K and I'm like, um, they're like, is he white, black? I'm like, I don't think he fits any of those, right. you know? And they're like, well, you kind of have to choose one. And I just felt so uncomfortable yeah. like having to choose one. I felt like he didn't fit any of them. So it's definitely something you know, I feel like. I hate, I hate that question yeah. too. If you ever want to have some fun, there was apparently one year in Brazil when they did a, um, a census where they just allowed people to fill in their, um, their race. And apparently they got like 79 different varieties of answers some of wow. which were like a little white <laughs> and it's, it, it turns That's out to be first of all like a commentary funny. on how it is like this is a social construct yeah. construct that's hard to boil down into check boxes but then also how people identify and so it was really funny <laughs> i'm sure they got a lot of different <laughs> varieties of responses so question we have is about you know kind of who you were when you were a kid what was it like for you in school how did you interact with teachers your friends that kind of thing well, I was always a good student. I tried to really be present, you know, my attendance was good, but not only being there, but just trying to pay attention and do my best. I pretty much got my work done, was respectful um, to my teachers and, you know, my classmates. I did participate in some extracurriculars, not as much as I would now, looking back, I would have liked to. Um, and I think that's also part of my upbringing because my parents didn't see the value in that. They thought just be at school every day, get good grades, like that's all you need. So I know I did like Spanish club um, throughout my high school years, which I'm thankful I did that. Uh, my teacher, my Spanish teacher was the advisor and I felt comfortable joining. And then I did golf in 10th grade and that was it. I wanted to continue and I told my mom and she was just like, no, you know, I don't have time to pick you up from practice and the games. And so I learned a lot about the sport. I mean, friends, I'm thankful for the experience, but definitely I wasn't like a jock, like into those sports. Like I didn't get that opportunity, but I was, you know, I was, I tried my best to participate in extracurriculars and do well in school with my grades. So I was a good kid. And I think my teachers saw that in me that I tried to have a good attitude and just do the right thing. The, uh, the teacher that was in charge of Spanish club, uh, was that person very influential? <clears throat> oh yeah, she was um, Cuban and she had you know very strong attitude. So a lot of <laughs> students didn't really love her, but I loved her. I just loved that she was always firm with us, but she did it out of love. So she taught us a lot about just not wasting time. You know, she had a saying like, El tiempo perdido hasta los muertos lo lloran. Like, even the dead people will cry about the time they waste. Like, you can't waste your time. Like, it's such, like, I will never forget those expressions, you know? And a lot of the stuff she did in class, like, I still do it in my class Can, now. So you said that quickly. Could you just say that again slowly? Because sure. I think I love that. <laughs> El tiempo perdido hasta los muertos lo lloran. Which translates to? Um, time that is lost is cried for even by the dead I love it. What's her name? Miss Landau. Great job, Miss Landau. Yeah. Yeah, I hope that she, you know, is doing well. I haven't really kept in touch with her, but she was definitely a role model for me. Um, and I think she, when you're a teacher, you don't know, you know, the impact that you have, even if it's just one student, like they're looking at up at you like as an example. So she had, like I said, a very strong personality. But I like that about her. Like she had a strong backbone and she was always telling us like to, we could do better. You know, there's always room for improvement. So can you promise to uh, send her a copy of this? Okay. Yes. I'll have to find her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and it's so interesting how you put, uh, because I had the same experience with, with my family that, yeah. that um, they didn't find value in like the extracurricular right. stuff. And they just didn't like want me to stay after school yeah like you come home to do your work yeah and you're home and it was just a weird like I didn't understand that mm -hmm. but like the way that you put it right now yeah. I just 
felt like they were like controlling. Yes. Right now you just put it in a completely different way for me that I could like think of it as like, no, they just didn't value that as much as they the grades and all of that. Right. They didn't know. I think that it's also important, an important piece of high school mm-hmm. and just growing up and in your social development. Exactly. Yeah. And like even for colleges, you know, they look at that. They look, you know, did you go beyond just the grades? Did you try and get involved? Did you do like volunteering mm-hmm. clubs, like sports? Were you part of a team like they want to see that you know so she now understands and she tells me you know if I could do things differently I would because my brothers didn't do any sports you know well actually one of them he did a little bit in middle school soccer and lacrosse but he didn't do anything in high school Mm. it was just go to school and even work you know Mm. work is an important priority too Mm -hmm. in in our in our culture so we a lot of us started working young I started working at 14 as a file girl in a pediatrician office and I remember that I was very proud that I was working a few hours after school because that made my mom and my dad happy you know Mm -hmm. my dad would drop me off I would get my paycheck and I always looked younger so they would say is this child labor she looks really young I'm like I'm 14 I have my working card but it's, oh, little 14 yeah, year old Carol yeah, filing it's paper it's funny to look back now on that you know but it's the truth you yeah. know I, it's interesting because I have the same experience with I, I didn't do any extracurricular activities at oh. all I I went to Catholic school about 40 minutes from my house wow. and I was a I was about this adult size when I was in eighth grade, so people saw me and said, oh, you should play on the football team. Right. And uh, my parents wouldn't even consider that once they heard that they would have to pick me up each day from practice. They said, no, I'm not doing it. <laughs> and it wasn't out of hostility. They were loving yeah, yeah, people, yeah. but um, they just, they, I had to, you know, have little jobs and stuff. And yeah, the yeah. idea of the value of that, my mom is from, a, from Canada, from a rural area, so she just didn't understand why you would invest like that right. what would the payoff be so right that's interesting that we all have similar experiences <laughs> yeah. you know all right so our next question so graduating from Broadwood high school where did you decide that you wanted to go to college and how did you pay for it so i went away my first year i actually wanted to go away but i still stayed with family because again family is also an important part of our culture so I went and moved to South Carolina my first year, and I lived with my aunt and uncle, and went to a, you know, it was like a community college out in South Carolina near the Charleston area, so we paid, like, out of pocket because it was out of state, so we weren't going to get any, like, aid or anything like that, so I did my first year there, and then I moved back here, and I went to SUNY Old Westbury to get my bachelor's in Spanish adolescent education, so I did pay you know, my first years out of pocket and then whatever, you know, aid I received, which um, then I had to get loans as well. So I still have some loans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, what was hard about college for you? Um, I think what the hardest thing about college was just the time, you know, I go back to that topic. Like when you're young, sometimes you don't have a good like understanding of how to manage your time. So I wanted to have fun with my cousin and go read at Barnes and Noble. And sometimes I wouldn't go to class, you know, and then I regretted it because my teacher didn't give me a good grade. You know, one of my teachers, I think it was like a business class I took. Um, I showed up, you know, for the exam and everything, but he, but he failed me. And I, I understood, you know, you can't do that. You know, sometimes you have to learn the hard way too. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, just prioritizing your time making sure that you are on top of all classes, even the online. The online was hard. So Mm -hmm. now that I think about like the pandemic and the remote classes, like I understood the kids so much because I didn't work well online. So just, you know, being on top of yourself, your schedule, you know, when I was working too. Mm -hmm. So all of that balancing was, to me, that was the most difficult. That's why I think um, like anytime they talk about remote learning, I'm actually an advocate for it because a third of students that Mm -hmm. are going to go to college are going to take predominant at least one yes but actually predominantly are going to take online classes and if they are not Mm -hmm. you know a little bit more comfortable with like just the entire notion of having to be online having to find your work and having to kind of be independent like that yeah then we're not preparing them for college because that's literally what they're going to be doing. That is true. So maybe it will be interesting to see if the education will start shifting. That way they might start offering. I think some schools already had offered online Mm -hmm. courses for high school. Mm -hmm. So, 
What did you find easy about college? Um, I think luckily I had a good work ethic. So like just being there, you know, seeing the work that I had to get done, handing the assignments in, especially the, like I said, the classes in person, like I was, I was fine with that. Um, and pretty much just being present and focused mm -hmm. on what I had to get done. And SUNY Old Westbury, that's a commuter school? Or yeah, you? I commuted to okay. that school. Okay. So, and then I went to Toro for my master's in ENL, so TESOL. So I pretty much commuted. The only co college that I went away to was when I was in South Carolina, but I still commuted. I didn't dorm there, right. but I got the experience to get away a little bit from my parents mm -hmm. because I also learned from a professor from SUNY Old Westbury. He was from Spain. Uh, el Profesor Guerrero, he always told us, the only way you're going to grow up and be who you are, you have to get away from your mom and your dad. <laughs> because they're always on you. You yeah. know, they're always putting their beliefs and what they think on you. Mm -hmm. And you have to get away to do what you think is right for you. Mm -hmm. So I am glad, even though it was only one year, I think that I did grow up a lot. I became more independent and I kind of found who I was. I got my first car out there. I learned how to drive. My mom was like not wanting for me to drive out here. She was, I was the baby and the only <laughs> girl. So she was a little more strict with me. So I got a little bit more of the freedom that I needed mm -hmm. out there. So what made you choose a career in education? Well, I ended up going to SUNY o Westbury and that was a school that was mainly for education. Like, it was a lot of um, courses and majors for teaching. And I knew I wanted to be a teacher because I wanted to impact young people in some way. I didn't know if I wanted to teach Spanish. I was actually looking into science as well because I really loved science, biology, but I just think it was going to be a little bit more challenging for me because I didn't have the background as much. So high school students are smart and when they do pick those AP courses because you're getting a taste of how it's going to look in college and if that's for you. So I took two Spanish AP courses in high school, the AP Spanish language and the AP Spanish literature. And I already felt like comfortable, like I had a good background. Obviously I'm very fluent and I would travel to Guatemala. So I knew the language, like I felt like it would be smarter for me to go with Spanish than science. But definitely wanted to impact the lives of young people. And, and you're a Spanish teacher and an ENL teacher. Yes, so I teach, currently I teach Spanish level four, as well as I've been teaching since I started here at Bellport High School, I teach the home language arts class, which is kind of like ELA, but in Spanish for those students who just came from their home country, whether it's El Salvador, Honduras, they need to continue expanding their home language skills. And that's what I do with them. So I really do love those classes a lot. So there are very few teachers of color. And so we're really wanting, because obviously it starts with the students. Yeah. And they have to think about careers of education for themselves. Mm -hmm. What would you tell your students of color to get them thinking about careers in education? Well, I would tell them that if they're really interested in, you know, being a role model for other students, and they could be of color, minorities, anyone that just looks at you as that can be me in the future, you know, like, I think that especially like, like I was saying, the home language arts classes, a lot of students see me and think that I'm very similar to their background. You know, I was born in the U.S., but like I said, I'm very, very proud of my um, Guatemalan roots, Central American roots, Hispanic roots, you know, and they also are, you know, because they were born in Honduras or El Salvador. So when they see me, you know, they, they see, wow, like I could become that one day. So like I said, not only the content you're teaching, but like, what are you teaching them for their lives? You know, I try to teach them positivity that it's not gonna be easy, but you can accomplish anything you want if you work for it, you know? So the work ethic is, is everything. And I know that they know how to work. It's just, what are they working towards? So. Anyone who's interested in teaching, if you're, you know, of color or minority, like you should definitely go for it because our students need that. They need those role models. They need to see themselves in someone. When you decided to pursue a career in education, what did your friends think? How did they react? I think most of my friends um, were, were proud and they admired my choice because they knew, you know, they knew it's, it's not for everyone. You know, I have a friend who went into nursing. I know that wasn't for me. You know, my mom would have loved for me to be a nurse because that's what she wanted to do but I knew that I, I wasn't gonna be able to deal with the blood and all that. 
but teaching was just, I think since I was young, you know, I always liked, even if it was like my cousins who just came from Guatemala, like I would make them write in a notebook, words in English. Like, I think it was just in me. I, I didn't know, maybe I didn't want to accept it at one point, but I think I was just meant to do teaching. Yeah, so I think they were proud and they, they were like, it makes sense and they admired my choice because they knew that I was doing what I loved and I was gonna impact a lot of young people. What about your family? Oh yeah, my parents, definitely proud. Um, they were happy with the choice I made because they knew that that's what I wanted. Um, my dad wanted me to be a cop, I don't know why. <laughs> I don't think I would survive as a cop even one, one hour maybe, but you know, they have different, I guess, goals for us, but you that's why you have to go with what you want to do, what you feel comfortable and know that that's what you can see yourself doing and loving. So I think they're both really proud. Like the first thing my dad tells his friends, oh, my daughter, she's a teacher, you know? <laughs> yes. There's, he's so proud. And, and my mom too, I know she's proud. And my siblings, everybody, you know, they, they're happy that, that I'm happy and I, and I was able to accomplish the goal. That was the main thing, you know? Like I could have gone to school, but if I didn't finish, you know, it's all about getting to the finish line. So yeah. my brothers were always telling me, make sure you, you look at the goal, you know? Go for the gold. Don't just stop. Don't do what we did because they had kids very young, both of them, mm -hmm. and they didn't get to do what they wanted to do, you know? But, you know, they're still successful, but they're they're proud for me focusing. That's the main thing because there's a lot of distractions, especially when you're young, but you just have to focus and keep going, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. Anytime. And sharing your story with us and your journey into education. Okay. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Thank you so much. No problem. Anytime. NYSIT is more than 600,000 people who work in or are retired from New York schools, colleges, and healthcare facilities. We are classroom teachers, college and university faculty, and professional staff, school bus drivers, custodians, secretaries, cafeteria workers, teachers' assistants and aides, nurses, and healthcare technicians. We are dedicated to improving not only our working conditions, but also our professions. We are united in a common commitment to improve the quality of education and healthcare for the people of New York. At NYSIT, we make a difference. Okay, so we're here with Naomi Escobar. And the first question we'd like to ask you is, how do you identify racially and or ethnically? So racially, I identify as, as being black, although I do understand that race is a social construct. So it's interesting because in depending on the space where I am, sometimes people will say, no, you're not black, you're definitely Latina. So I really am an, an Afro-Latina, but I'm mixed because um, from my mother's side, she's white. But I know that um, when I was growing up, people would say, you know, you're, you're a black kid or, you know, you're a person, we would now use the term person of color. Um, and now just depending on, you know, if I'm in New York, people will mostly say, you know, I'm a Latina, but then if I go out of New York where there's less Latinos, then they'll predominantly identify me as being black. Where is your father from? He's from Costa Rica. Okay. So our first question, what kind of kid were you? And when we ask that, you mean like as a student, your in social interactions, grades, that kind of thing? Okay. So as a student, I was quite introverted and shy very different from now. Um, I've changed a lot over the years. I was a good student. From high school, I was, I believe I was in the top 10% of my class. Um, in college, I knew that I wanted to try to do even better. So I got, I think, a 3.9 GPA in college. Um, and I think that part of that was, I'd like to say maybe racially motivated because I felt like I had a need to prove myself and just um, show that I could just do the best, which, you know, I mean, I, part of it was maybe just, you know, my own self-esteem. Um, but yeah, I was definitely, I struggled with identity as a child. I went through the South Country School District and um, just fitting in was challenging. Being, really being a mixed race uh, child or biracial child, um, I didn't really know if I fit in well, like with the students of color or with the white students. And I bounced back and forth between both groups for a lot of my, my childhood and, you know, teenagerhood. At home, were you mostly, did you mostly associate with people of color in your neighborhood and within your like family and family friends circles? That's a great question. Um, so 
Family-wise, um, I, I would say that my mom was the predominant one raising us, so I was probably more exposed to white culture. However, um, I was exposed to white culture because my mom uh, played a predominant role in, you know, in raising myself and my sisters, and, um, you know, she, her background is white. Uh, however, um, I was raised as a, um, in, in the Baha'i religious community, and the main teaching of the Baha'i faith is unity and diversity. So I was really lucky to be exposed to uh, wide, uh, I guess, a, a diverse, um, diverse people um, throughout my whole childhood and really my whole life, I could say. Um, so in my family, um, I was exposed to both my father's side of the family, which was the Afro-Latino side, and my mother's side, which was um, the, the white side of my family. So I definitely was exposed to diverse people throughout my, my childhood and adulthood, which was lucky. So moving on to your college experience, where did you decide to go? How did you pay for it? And what did you find particularly hard or easy about it? So I ended up making a decision to go to college at Hofstra University. Um, I think I was, because of some of my issues with identity, nervous to go away away. I feel like that definitely played a role. Um, financially, to be able to pay for it, I needed to take out loans, um, which was challenging, and I'm still paying them back to this day. Um, I, my father, throughout my life, he, um, by trade, is an elect, well, by, I guess, by edu educationally, is um, an electrical engineer. However, throughout most of my childhood and you know teenage years, he would get laid off. And now I wonder, although I can't prove, but I wonder if some of it was racial. And you know, as he got older, um, you know that was it was definitely challenging. Uh, you know, we we thankfully we were still able to have a house. My mom um, is an occupational therapist, so she definitely you know took over working when you know when he wasn't, and then. You know, thankfully, he was able to find other jobs throughout, but it definitely is something that I think about, um, you know, to this day. But so I guess like that was one of the reasons why, you know, they helped me pay for some of it. However, a lot of it was definitely on my shoulders. And I think back in those days um, when I went to college, you didn't really think that, you know, you said you say I'm going to get a job after college and it won't be difficult to pay back private school. Um, yeah, I mean, that was, <laughs> I guess, like, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty in regards to that. But um, I do uh, really appreciate my experience at Hofstra because um, I was able to start taking courses in things like African-American literature, Caribbean literature, things that we had very minimal exposure to when I was in high school. And it just like really opened like just this new world to me because I was quite an avid reader throughout my childhood. So just, um, I guess, just being able to have that exposure and those discussions with a group of like-minded people was amazing. So let me ask you, how did you pick speech pathology and language? Because it's a narrow field compared to people just broadly in education, so I'm interested. Yeah, thank you. That's a, that's a great question as well. Um, so my mom is an occupational therapist, so I had had the previous exposure to speech because I guess um, you know when I had first graduated, or maybe even when I was studying speech, um, people really weren't um, very aware of what the field was, but that was how I learned about it. And um, I guess through, I took a trip when I was in high school to Europe. And when I went to some of the countries where I didn't speak the language, um, I remembered how difficult that, how, how challenging that felt. So I really, I guess communication is a strength of mine. So I wanted to really have the opportunity to be able to give people a voice who struggled in that area. So I think that that was how I made my ultimate, you know, determination as to like, this is the field that I really want to pursue. So, Naomi, you know that there are very few teachers of color and even fewer students of color that go into education as a you know, major. So what would you tell your students of color today to get them to think about careers in education? I would encourage them that really having representation of people of color within this field is just so important. Um, I think that... Um, Historically, sometimes students don't believe that they have the capacity to do, you know, jobs like, like this, but I think that that's an absolute fallacy. So it's really important for, I guess, when I think about myself and, um, you know, in wanting to be in, within a school setting um, and actually back in the school setting that I graduated from, understanding that this is a diverse district 
I really wanted the students of color to be able to see that they can do something like this too, and that it just really is important to have just diverse voices in, in every career and field, but especially in education because we're we're molding you know the next generation where where we need those diverse voices so that way you know children will be able to have um, like a a diverse way of thinking and just a variety of different viewpoints. When you were in the classroom, do you? Did, did you have teachers of color? A couple. I didn't have a lot of teachers of color, but um, probably not until middle school, maybe high school, a few, but definitely I did not have a lot of teachers of color, even did, throughout my college experience. Did you feel like you could relate to the teachers of color that you did have? Yes, definitely. I feel like a little bit more so maybe than, I don't know, I guess some, some white teachers definitely as well, but um, yeah, there's just something about having a teacher of color and just having them understand that that experience of, of, of hardship and difficulty that I feel like it helped me connect with them maybe a little bit better. So here's my next question. What did your friends think about your career choice? So because of my religious background and being with diverse people, I don't really think that my my friends really questioned, you know, what I was doing. I think that maybe some groups of my friends, maybe some of my, more of my friends who are people of color might have thought like, you know, like, what is she doing? But they never said that to my face. So I think that overall, luckily, I, I felt pretty supported and definitely by my parents. So it was a good experience overall. I have this another follow-up question sure. because the nature as I understand it, the nature of your job is that you're coming to kids when they when they have the specific need. And it's probably really uh, especially satisfying when you help them see progress. Is it ever difficult to see a student struggling to make progress and not carry that weight with you as you as they, at least in, in the time you're with them, fail to see the progress that you'd hope for them? that's certainly probably the one of the most challenging things um if a student doesn't make progress in the way that i would like um i think over the course of my career now doing it for about like 14 years or so i've learned to not carry that as much with me but i know that that is just a part of my personality to really like care i I find myself to be an empath so i care very deeply about people so it is a challenge when I see a, a student struggling. Um, however, you know, again, I think I have learned a little bit better over time to just not carry that with me. If I'm experiencing um, a challenging, um, something that's challenging in terms of communication with a student, I'll try to ask other people to, again, like just embracing that concept of diversity throughout that, you know, somebody might have a better idea of what to do than I do myself. I bet you that the development of language is such a long process and you have this limited time with them that uh, like where Wendy and I would teach social studies, if we we hope that they understand this particular historical topic and at the end we'll know if they had, but um, I guess you have to sort of realize that you're playing the long game. So that's uh, just something that is probably difficult, but I have tremendous amount of respect for it. Thank you. Yeah, language is very complex. All you can do is your best to be able to teach patterns and to, I really like to think of it as like functional communication. So being able to equip the child with as many means as possible through which they can be a functional communicator as well as an advocate for themselves. I bet you that Ms. Escobar is a hero in a lot of people's households <laughs> because this is the, something that when, when a child has a speech problem, it probably creates a lot of stress for parents. So when they make, when they make progress with you, you're probably an absolute celebrity in your household. <laughs> I I would I would hope so. I mean, not that I need that. I don't need that that praise. But it's funny that you bring that up because there actually is a student here in you know at this level who's a fourth grader who I treated for speech back when she was three or four, and it's interesting that she, there was some project based learning activity that that they had done, and she brought up that I was her speech teacher and that that was important to her. So that really like just melted my heart. Because I just want to be able to make a difference. Naomi, never, ever underestimate the difference that you're making here with our kids. You are giving them the skills and the confidence for them to be their best selves. So we thank you so much for all of your work. 
And we are very thankful that you have shared your story with us here today. All right, so that wraps up the last episode of our Teachers of Color mini-series, and I'm back here with my co-host, Andrew. And let's just talk about some of the takeaways that we have. Um, As we've interviewed all of our Teachers of Color, who are wonderful guests, and I'm so thankful to all of them for having come on and talked to us and spent a little time with us, shared their experiences. Um, But there were some really important things that we learned. Yeah, for sure. When I look back on this series of episodes, like, like you said, I'm so appreciative of everyone who agreed to participate. And what I love about it is that very often when we look at issues of identity, we end up looking at people within these groups in this like monolithic sense like there is a particular experience for black teachers there's a particular experience for latino teachers there's a particular experience for asian teachers and uh, what i loved about the conversations was that there's very unique experiences for each of them Uh, even when they had common experiences they even processed them differently so it was kind of in line with with your whole vision for this podcast, which is that people's individual stories matter. So that's what I loved about it. Yeah. As a Latina teacher, I realized that I was, you know, finding commonalities with the black teachers that we interviewed, the, you know, Latina teachers and um, even our one Asian American teacher, like there were just similarities in the experiences, but yeah, the perspectives and the way that we all interpreted them, you know, it, it varied depending on you know, our family structures and, you know, what, what kind of communities we were, we were raised in. Um, and so I really loved listening to all of them. Uh, what was your favorite one? It's so hard to do that, right? It's hard. <laughs> I mean, it, it might be uh, Rodney O'Neill because he's like the person I'm closest with of everyone who's been interviewed. Uh, but I think anyone who knows Rodney O'Neill Uh, would know that you could know him like I have for almost 25 years and the more you talk to him the more you find out that there are additional layers to him so so that might have been my favorite but it's really hard to pick and uh and I also I don't know who the student was that asked that great question of you (laughs) that asked about hey look with all this focus on identity uh, is it possible for white teachers to connect with students of color uh, also, I whoever that was, I love that question because yeah. it just reminds us that whenever we talk about uh, big topics and big ideas, it leads to to difficult questions. And you know, as social studies teachers, we love the difficult questions. Yeah, and was that was that a part? of Rodney's uh, episode. It was. That student did listen to Rodney's episode and came back to me and said, that was a really great episode. I really liked it. When is your next one coming out? Oh, I love it. Because <laughs> now I've, I've gotten to the point now where I've told people that they should listen to every one of these podcasts, but that happens to be my favorite one <laughs> so far. In, uh, in addition, not just for Rodney and for that difficult question we started off with, but also, um, uh, Ms. Obama gives this great uh, perspective of somebody who's a younger generation mm-hmm. uh, because regardless of the group that you might identify with, often your generation has a big impact on it too. Right. But she brought that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So we started off this mini-series because our statewide union, NYSIT, has an initiative called Take a Look at Teaching. And the purpose is to get students of color to take a look at teaching specifically. Um, We thought that telling stories about how teachers of color came to education um, would be really valuable. Andrew, what do you think about the Take a Look at Teaching initiative that NYSIT has? So I really appreciate it because I've been involved in hiring uh, on a lot of different realms, specifically for social studies. And then I'm always listening to conversations surrounding the hiring of teachers of color, even when that conversation happens outside our school district. And a lot of times people who are on board with the idea will simply say, we just don't get applicants. 
we have a couple of applicants. It can't be the only reason we hire somebody. If we had more people applying, we would have a better time diversifying our teaching staff. And I think this NICET initiative and, and Wendy, your work with the, with the podcast, this is the kind of proactive thing that people need to do that you need to start to have a conversation with young people as they are having these these initial thoughts about what they're gonna do with the rest of their lives, you wanna get them to think about it. I do think that life in education, because it's been so fulfilling for me, I think once you start to consider it, it's not for everyone, but, um, but I think you might get more students of color considering it on the front end, which I think is the answer. You know what I was so excited about? Last month, the Long Island Advance did an article for Black History Month on future leaders in our school districts. And we had a few students who were recognized from Belport High School. Um, and I was really proud of them, but I was really excited to see that a few of them were considering going to college for teaching. I think I will be reaching out to those students and they will be our next guests if they'll agree to come on because you know, looking at and talking to students of color who are considering that, um, that's gonna be super validating. And hopefully we can get you know, their peers to listen to their stories and start thinking about it also. So we need this domino effect to happen because what a, what a different world it would be if we had more teachers of color. I, can, I can't even imagine if even half of my teachers were teachers of color, like how, how different my experience would have been. I had a wonderful experience, you know, it just would have been different. And, you know, I, I do believe that we would have been my, my culture, like my family, like we would have been a little bit more seen. And Wendy, you know, I do think that if you have a more diverse uh, teaching staff, more kids will feel seen. But even when you have students like myself, who the groups that I came from were well represented in the teaching staff, uh, so I, I certainly felt seen. But I would, it's better if I see more myself. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, so I loved when I had um, the occasional opportunity to have a teacher who was from a different background. Uh, it just didn't happen that that much but i saw more of the world through them Hmm. so it's a value for all students yeah it's interesting once again i just want to thank all of our guests for coming on and sharing their stories um i i'm really grateful i they're doing wonderful work here at belport high school and at frank p long with ms escobar Um, And we're really proud of them. And we hope our students of color start thinking about careers in education. It's a wonderful career. Um, You get to make a difference and live a really good life financially and otherwise. Um, New York State, our unions, we are really good at making sure that our that our members are respected and that they um, have the benefits that they are due, the salaries that they are due, um, and we're always striving to improve our, our members' lives. So so take a look at teaching, everyone. Absolutely, Wendy, and I appreciate you, uh, you know, just coming up with this, this sequence of, of uh, episodes that have been some of my favorites, so great job. Thanks.